Well, turn with me to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, there are occasionally messages I would rather not preach because I know everyone expects me to apply my sermons to my own life. And this is one I really tried to squirm out of, but that's the nature of preaching continuous exposition through books of the Bible. You can't avoid the uncomfortable topics or the ones that hit close to home. So if you find yourself in discomfort tonight, you are not alone. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about the discipline of the Lord and specifically what we are to learn from it. Now, the great debate about the discipline of the Lord is trying to discern what any sort of suffering or trial is. Is it discipline or is it just part of life? Which one is it? Once in a while, not that often, severe discipline is clear and obvious because it seems to come in the form of very natural consequences The loss of a relationship, the loss of a job due to poor job performance, things that are obvious and that are observable. Generally, discipline from the Lord involves loss. At the very least, it involves the loss of pride. And so before we get into our text tonight, I want to just give you a little bit of a foundation. And I want to start with some basic facts about the discipline of the Lord so that we can have a really a proper perspective on discipline. So I'm going to give you a few facts about the discipline of the Lord, just basic facts. First of all, discipline happens to 100% of Christians. Discipline happens across the board, 100% of us. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So discipline is not something for the evil Christian. It is something for all Christians. 100%. There's really not a lot of point in speculating all the time as to whether a trial in your life is discipline. Just treat it as discipline. As a hard but a loving act of God, which is ultimately for your good and for his glory. Here's a second fact, just a basic fact. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. We have such great hope here. Galatians 4.19, we see that this is the Apostle Paul's wish for all believers. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. And so that means that's going to happen. Christ will be formed in you. We get great hope from 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, your sanctified, glorified self isn't here yet. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. And what's the mechanism that makes that happen? Because we shall see Him as He is. So simply seeing the glorified Christ at the end of your life, that will finish the process of sanctification instantly. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. Let me give you a third fact, just a basic fact. Any trial should result in self-examination. Any trial should result in self-examination. Hebrews 12, verse 10 says, For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, here's the reason, that we may share His holiness. We may share his holiness. And so any trial is an opportunity for self-examination. And and it really should happen. Let me give you a fourth fact. Basic fact of discipline. 
We're called to endure with hope and humility. We're called to endure with hope and humility. Here's the hope, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In other words, you, you're, the, this is a great word, drooping. You're, you're just droopy. And it says, no, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. But here's the humility, chapter 12, verse 13 of the book of Hebrews. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What does that mean? It means that God has in his discipline, this is the, this is the metaphor, he has, he has given you a lameness, a limp. And the idea is for you to self-examine and to become more like Christ. And if you won't do that, if you won't take corrective action, then he takes the lameness and he, and he cuts your knees out from under you and makes you even more lame, puts it out of the joint. And so we take it seriously. We endure discipline with hope but also with humility. There's a fifth basic fact, and that is that discipline may be associated with relationships. Discipline may be associated with relationships. It's no coincidence that the very next verse, Hebrews 12, verse 14, right after speaking to us of discipline, says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we'll talk a lot about relationships here in a few minutes. But this is right in the context of Hebrews 12 and the exhortation to endure discipline with patience that discipline may be associated with your relationships. I'll give you one more basic fact. Genuine confession of sin may end discipline. Genuine confession of sin may end discipline. James 5 verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I don't have time to spend a lot of time showing this to you, but the context of James 5 is someone who has rejected the clear admonitions of the elders of his church, and he continues in sin and has gotten sick. But his confession and his self-humbling ends the time of pain, ends the time of discipline. The Lord brings relief to him. So, any time of trial that I know I'm suffering... Here are the basic facts. Discipline happens to 100% of Christians. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. Any trial should result in self-examination. We're called to endure with hope and humility. Discipline may be associated with relationships. And genuine confession of sin may end discipline. So that's just a foundation for us to understand. But the real question is, what am I going to learn? What am I going to learn? Now, I'm going to just take a sidestep for a moment here and tell you that I don't necessarily think that you cognitively and, and consciously coming up with the lessons for your discipline is always what happens. I think very often after a long period of time of suffering and trials in your life, you're just simply different. God has remade parts of you that you're not even aware of until you look back and say, this is what I learned. This is what I do differently now. This is how I'm a different person. Not just that I learned a lesson and I better, go, I better not go back on that. It's that I'm different now. There is this certain area of my life that I'm simply not going to struggle with as much because of this time of suffering. However, that being said, it, that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to attempt to learn something. What am I going to learn? What is God doing in my own heart, in my mind, doing in my life? How do I act differently? How do I think differently? And so we're to embrace discipline as a gift from the Lord for your sanctification 
and for your Christ-likeness. And I'll just say this too. Uh, whenever I do counseling with people, if I ever am able to convince them to embrace a trial as something to make them more like Christ, generally speaking, counseling can end. Because all of a sudden, the goal is not to solve the problem. The goal is to walk through it in a Christ-like manner. Problem solved. Well, let's go back to our friends at the foot of Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel. They've been at the foot of Mount Sinai for some months now, receiving the law of God. They've agreed to enter into covenant with God. They've received detailed instructions concerning the worship of God. And as we've seen in the past few messages In the book of Numbers, God is imparting spiritual maturity through them. And the first lesson we saw was spiritual maturity through obedience. The second one, spiritual maturity through worship. And tonight, I'd like to talk to you about spiritual maturity through discipline. Spiritual maturity through discipline. And very simply, I'd like to show you, since we're asking the question, what do I learn? Three lessons that discipline can teach you. Three lessons discipline can teach you. And we'll put aside the question, is the Lord disciplining me or not? Simply assume he is. Lesson number one, stop complaining. Stop complaining. Chapter 10, and we begin in verse 11. And now Israel is finally leaving Mount Sinai. This is a major section break in the book of Numbers. And in fact, in all of the Pentateuch. Chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, On the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. Now, this isn't just Israel wandering off together. There is pomp and ceremony. There's a specific order of leaving with every tribe having their own tribal flag or banner And divided into companies. Let me put it this way. This was a parade that took hours and hours to accomplish. Going first, the tribe of Judah. The tribe from which the Lord Jesus Christ would be descended. The legal firstborn of Jacob. They go first. Chapter 10 verse 14. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. So then we have the tribes of Issachar and Zebulun. And then there's, a, there's sort of a break, and now the Levite clans of Gershon and Merari carry the tabernacle, uh, all the parts of the tabernacle, the, the coverings, and then the, the structure. And so they're going after the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Then you have the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And then you have the Levite clan, again, of Kohath, carrying all the holy things of the tabernacle. We've talked about this several times. And so this is very logical. The Levite clans of, of the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari are carrying the tabernacle itself and coming after them some hours later are the Kohathites who are now carrying the actual holy thing. So when they arrive, the tabernacle is already set up. That's the idea. After the Kohathites, you have the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Dan is listed third to last but given the task of being the rear guard of Israel. We don't know exactly how that works, but we know that they were given the task of looking back and make sure nobody was attacking from behind. Now, remember that we're talking about over 600,000 men of military age. That includes now older parents, uh, wives, children, and animals. So this is a parade that's miles and miles long 
with several million people trekking away from Sinai. It would have been a glorious sight. I, I don't know if heaven has videos of things that happen in the Bible, but that's one thing I want to see. And they've set out with the cloud of the glory of God going before them. You remember the two silver trumpets earlier in chapter 10. They've sounded the glorious song of summoning the people and breaking camp. The flags are flying. There's excitement in the air. They're headed to their new home, Canaan, to their very own country, which has been deeded to them by their king. And going before all of them in the front of the pack, is the Ark of the Covenant of God, the throne of God on earth going before them. In chapter 6, verse 33, So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. How glorious, how majestic, how victorious. Chapter 11, verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. How disappointing. How disappointing. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. What misfortunes? Well, maybe fear of the unknown. No apparent food or water sources beyond what, was, what the Lord was providing. They weren't settled. They left the only home all of them had ever known. And it's interesting here that the text is vague. It doesn't say what their misfortunes is speaking of. What this indicates is just a negative view about everything. A wah, wah, wah. And it's the idea that if somebody dropped, dropped a brick of gold on your foot, you'd complain about how much it hurt. It's everything. Everything is wrong. And in fact, this word for complaining is the same word that speaks of murmuring, of muttering under your breath. And yet the Lord heard them because he knows the hearts of all. And so what did the Lord do? He disciplined them. He insists on holiness from his people. The Lord complained in the hearing, verse 1, the hearing of the Lord, sorry, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. It doesn't say what the fire burned, and it doesn't say that it killed anybody, but apparently it was burning tents or shrubs on the outskirts of the camp. Verse 2, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Taborah just means burning. So, Really not too bad of a discipline. Just your stuff's catching on fire and that's not convenient. But they were complaining. So what is complaining? Really, we, we, we sing of some hymns or some uh, psalms where King David says, I will bring to you my complaint. Complaining to God in Scripture generally connotes prayer of Help, asking for help. It's not the idea of having an attitude problem. So we mark that off. What is complaining about? And how is it different than just pointing out negative facts? How is that different? Sometimes true negative facts have to be pointed out in order to make an adjustment. In other words, negative words are spoken for the purpose of creating something more positive. That's just life. We understand that. But complaining, and in this context in particular, 
It has no upside to it. There's no positive outcome. It is, it is done purely for the purpose of being sinful and being discontent. And so the question might be asked, how do you know you're complaining? Well, I want to give you three signs that you're complaining. The first one is you are protesting a circumstance God ordained. You're protesting a circumstance God ordained. In other words, you're saying, I, I wish this wasn't happening. A protest of a circumstance God ordained. Now, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God ought to lead you to less complaining because sovereignty says that all circumstances have been ordained by God, right? It's a great reminder that you are on the path God has set before you, that really your complaints, all they are is in the front to the Lord, that complaining says, my plan for me would be much better than your plan for me, Lord. And the more you believe in sovereignty, the less complaining is really even seems useful to you because it doesn't do any good. I had a professor in seminary who liked to use the phrase that sometimes we're unhappy with the next page of the script that God has written for our lives. But that's a great way of thinking about your life because it is the script God has written. And it's how we are content. Here's a second sign you might be complaining. You're blind to God's mercies. You're blind to God's mercies. Complaining and thankfulness can't coexist. You really can't do both at the same time. And so this is why very helpfully Paul commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that we give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're blind to God's mercies, if all you can see are the difficulties and you stop being thankful, you're complaining. One more sign you may be complaining and this one will be easiest to see because people will tell you you're dragging down your loved ones with negativity. You're dragging down your loved ones with negativity. You ever had somebody come up to you and 30 seconds later you say, well, you know, 30 seconds ago I was happy in the Lord and I'm suicidal now and the only difference is that you came up and talked. Psalm 106 recounts this very time that Israel was complaining and it says in verse 25 of Psalm 106, because you might be asking, where did they complain? It says in Psalm 106 verse 25, they murmured in their tents. They murmured in their tents. It was husband to wife, wife to husband. And I know that your family relationships should be the closest ones in which you're real, which you're transparent. But wisdom and godliness dictates that in your home, you don't, under, you don't allow unrestrained murmuring. That that doesn't happen. That yes, you listen. And yes, you're a sounding board. But you always try to guide and shepherd toward a godly response. Toward asking the question, you've made a complaint Has it helped? How can we thank the Lord for blessings? How can we move forward in a way that sees the the work of God? How can we trust His sovereignty? The worst destructive talk and ungodly gossip tends to happen at home, as if tearing somebody down verbally and complaining is okay if it's with my spouse or close family member. We don't get a pass that way. We don't get a pass. So what do you do? Well, if you've seeing those three signs of complaining in yourself, then you continue to work and ask the Lord's help to assist you to obey Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what's the next word? Think about these things. 
That's what you do. Think on the goodness of God. Think on God's track record in your life. Think on every single blessing you have currently. I think one of the most effective things that Sylvia and I have ever done is when we're in the midst of a grave difficulty that one of us suggests to the other, let's just stop and begin counting our blessings. That changes everything. Changes everything. Now listen, the inherent warning of this little incident with Israel is that God does not stand idly by while unrestrained murmuring and complaining is happening. He doesn't just say, well, you did it in the privacy of your own home. That's your business. No, like a good father when complaining happened, he gave them something to truly be concerned with. He set their camp on fire. And that's what we sometimes tell our kids. If you don't stop griping about this, I'm going to give you something to complain about. By the way, the text doesn't say if the people made a connection between the complaining and the fires. We don't ever see that. But God has made the connection for us. A good warning for us that self-examination is always a reasonable response to any sort of crisis. We don't know if they know why the fires were there. But we do know, we know that the fires were there because of their complaining. Therefore, we should take that example. So, stop complaining. There's a second lesson that discipline can teach you. Stop craving Stop craving. Chapter 11, verse 4. We're going to spend some time on this one. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Now there's a more specific complaint. First of all, who are the rabble? The rabble are Egyptians. Egyptians and possibly some other non-Hebrews who had elected to come with Israel. In fact, the Hebrew word for rabble, rabble is kind of a nice word. It's actually vagabond or homeless person. In other words, they, they said, hey, you guys look like you got a good deal going. Can we come with you? According to the law of God, they would say, yes, you can. God's law allowed non-Israelites to join the nation, provided they entered into covenant and kept the law. But the Egyptians with them were missing some pieces. They didn't have the strong historical connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't have the Abrahamic covenant that they, as a nation, been hearing about for hundreds of years. All they had in terms of heritage was their Egyptian heritage. They didn't have that sense of enjoying a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. They were just along for an adventure or for a new start of some sort. But the adventure didn't last long. They had left their home and now they had a strong craving. And by the way, did you notice when the rabble, those whose faith in God was likely shallow or even false, when they began to have a craving, a lust, a selfish desire, it was contagious. Because it says, and the people of Israel also wept again. Complaining is worse than coronavirus. It is contagious. And now they begin to reminisce Verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now, here's what happens with a lustful craving. Listen very carefully. Everything good they had from the Lord now seemed bad. Verse 1, they murmured about their misfortunes. What misfortunes? They're a free people. They just defeated the army of Egypt by God's power. They just entered into covenant with God. They've been given a brand new nation to possess, and yet it all seems bad to them. It's upside down. And not only that, all they can picture from a bad situation was that which was 
good. That it's good. You should notice what they said. Oh, we remember when our food was free. Why was it free? Because they were slaves and they needed to be fed in order to do work. That's seeing something that used to be bad as now good. Listen, when you're tempted by a consuming craving, by a lust, that is exactly the dynamic that happens. Your blessings begin to seem like a curse, and that which would destroy you seems like a blessing. This is the rationalization of people who destroy their marriages, who destroy their families to pursue the fantasy of, a, of greater happiness elsewhere. This is the rationalization of pursuing wealth at all costs, that what I have is not good enough, therefore I need to pursue something better. This is the rationalization of pursuing sexual sin at all costs. That which is a blessing begins to seem like a curse, and that which will destroy you seems to be now the only thing that feels like a blessing. And you've got it opposite. You literally have turned upside down that which is good and that which is bad. The blessings you already have seem like a reason to sin and the enticement of sin seems like it will bless you and make you happy. I have had women sit and tell me face to face, I feel so trapped by my husband and children and my life, I need to find something better. Husband and children and life is the blessing and now it turned into the curse. Israel had been receiving manna from God, food raining down from heaven. They'd been receiving this every day since before getting to Mount Sinai. Now they're complaining about what? About the lack of variety. They're lusting for more. So chapter 11, verse 6, But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses, the writer of Numbers, reminds the reader about manna. Verse 7, Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. Let me stop right there. What is this saying? It has a wonderful flavor and it's even sparkly like a jewel. In other words, he's saying how positive it is. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So there's a reminder But how strong was the craving of the people? It was so strong that they regarded their food from heaven as a reason to grieve and to mourn. Look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. They didn't get what they wanted to eat and so they're literally weeping in the doorways of their tents. And neither God nor Moses had any sympathy for them. But now Moses speaks to the Lord. And he says that the burden on him is too great. You know how drained you feel when somebody complains to you for a couple hours? How about for a long period of time, 600,000 men complaining to you? He's done. He's finished. And in fact, he asks God a favor. Will you please kill me? Chapter 11, verse 13 where am I to get meat to give all these this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat and we may eat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Now listen, it, Moses wasn't just concerned about trying to find meat. What he was concerned with is the spiritual burden. How do you take 600,000 men plus their elderly parents and their wives and their children and take them from a place of griping and complaining to a place of gratitude and thankfulness? How do you do that? 
Verse 15, if you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I've heard people put Moses down for this. I've probably talked to 10 different pastors during my ministry who were seriously suicidal. They know it's wrong. They know they should trust the Lord. And it always comes down to the same thing. They just say, I have nothing left. All I do is have people take from me and nothing's going in. And I'm done. So this is very serious. Moses is just done. And so God is gracious, as always. God will help Moses concerning the spiritual burden of shepherding God's people. How could Moses counsel 600,000 men and their families? How could he shepherd that many? Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and place it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So God brings 70 men to help Moses. In the Old Testament, the role of the Holy Spirit was particularly often in the form of special enablement for a specific task. It's not that somehow the Spirit of God was divided or limited, but the phrase, I will take some of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them, simply indicates they would receive the same divine assistance that Moses had. Now, these men were not there for administrative help, they were not there to answer the phone and answer emails. They were there, Moses already got that, Exodus 18. He had a whole group of men who were already helping him with administrative things. These were men specifically to give him spiritual support. They were there to shepherd God's people. But it would be in a way that no one expected because God is about to provide meat, but it won't be a blessing. The meat will be a discipline. Chapter 11, verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, And have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? And now at this point, Moses questions God. He's wondering, where are we going to get meat for 600,000 men and their families? But he continues forward. I want to give you a little hint. From here on out, the rest of the chapter, the word spirit, ruach in Hebrew, is very important. And so you want to watch for this. Chapter 11, verse 24 So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit, the ruach that was on him, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. The Spirit, the Ruach of God, has come upon the 70 men, and for a time they're prophesying. What does this mean? They're declaring the word of the Lord. It doesn't mean they're foretelling the future. What it means is they're telling the word of God. They're preaching to the people by means of the power of the Spirit. 
Why would they need purely power of the Spirit to preach? Because there was something they didn't have yet. They didn't have a Bible. And so the Spirit of God is speaking through them, preaching to the people. And then this little interesting sidebar happens. It's almost an asterisk. Joshua, Moses' assistant, is upset that these two men, Eldad and Medad, are prophesying. And he's, he's loyal. He says, Moses, that's your job. Chapter 11, verse 29, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Side note, book of Joel, chapter 2, prophesies that someday all the people of God will have the spirit of God and this will actually come true. That's not our point for tonight, though. When Moses says, would, all, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit, his ruach, on them. That's going to come about in a completely different way. There it is again. The Spirit, the Ruach of God. Moses wishes that the Spirit would visit all the people. And here comes the meat. Verse 31, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp. And about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers and spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. What's happening here? Moses' prayer for his people is being answered. It is not a coincidence that we see a crescendo of ruach, 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 because now, then, a wind, same Hebrew word, a ruach from the Lord, came and brought the deadly quail. Before, when they complained, the camp caught fire. This time, many of them died, and they died by the hand of the Spirit of God. They died having heard the word of God proclaimed by 70 preachers and still not repenting. They died despite these 70 preachers beseeching them to seek God, to trust God, to obey God, to hear the word of God, to grasp onto their God. But if the people would not hear the words of the Spirit, then they would eat the judgment of the Spirit. Now, there is a theological question here. Did those who died die in faith? as disciplined, true believers in God? Or were they unbelievers, unforgiven, doomed to an eternal punishment? The text doesn't answer that question, but we have a couple of hints. Those who died are included with the rabble, the false ones, the vagabonds. So it's reasonable to assume that they had no internal reality of faith in the Lord. They had no sense of their own sin, no sense of need for humility and forgiveness from the Lord. Even after 70 preachers had sought their hearts. There's one thing we do know about those who died. Verse 34. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'avah. Because there they buried the people who had the craving. The ones who died were the ones who had the cravings, the internal lust. Did you catch that? They died for their heart attitudes. We don't know. All the people gathered the quail. Only God knew which ones had the craving, had the internal lust. God judged their heart attitude. Some say, as long as I don't act on the desire, then it's morally neutral. 
that as long as nothing outward happens, then I have not sinned. There is an entire movement now to say that you can be a Christian with homosexual feelings, and as long as you don't act on them, you may say, I am a Christian homosexual, and simply leave it at that, and that's okay. That's not what this text would say. Heart attitude is judged. Those who died were killed because of their internal craving. And listen, it's not that they had an internal craving and recognized it as sin. And you may be thinking, oh no, I have lots of internal cravings. They didn't recognize it as sin. They didn't fight it. They didn't repent of it. They didn't ask God for help. They had 70 preachers to turn them toward God and away from sin. They didn't fight it. They weren't sorrowful, they weren't repentant, and they paid the price for believing that their own personal idolatry was worthy of rebellion against God. And it's precisely these sorts of preoccupations and cravings which can derail your life, derail your walk with Christ. So how do you know? How do you discern? Not by your emotions, first of all. Saying something like, I don't feel convicted about any potential idolatrous cravings in my life, that's useless. That's pointless. In fact, that's idolatry of self in and of itself because it says, I am worthy to judge myself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself. And you might say, see, that's what I've been saying. For I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Did you catch that? Paul said, my own opinion in my heart is not sufficient. He can't fully know even his own heart. So what do you do? Well, you need a more honest evaluation. And I want to try to help us with this about cravings. I want to give you three simple questions to ask yourself. Three simple questions to ask yourself Self-evaluation, first of all, what am I most preoccupied with? What am I most preoccupied with? I'm not talking about the obvious things necessarily like money or sexual sin or power. Those are actually just the outcomes of deeper, more hidden idols of the heart. I'm talking about things like preoccupied with control over my circumstances, control over my relationships, a fear of what people think, a, a need for acceptance by others, a fear of the feelings associated with being corrected, so I'll do anything to avoid correction. And so the first question is, what am I most preoccupied with? And I want to tell you this, and this might surprise you, they might be good things. It is possible to turn a good thing into an idolatrous craving. I want a wife who is perfectly loving And I'm going to be dissatisfied. I'm going to be discontent. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bitter until that happens. That's turned a good desire into a craving. Second simple question to ask yourself. What would I preserve at all costs? Even sinning to preserve it. What would I preserve at all costs? Even sinning to preserve it. What's so precious to me that I would violate God, violate my own conscience to have it? Or to avoid it, either one. For example, do you so need to control your spouse that you're willing to use put-downs and constant criticism and sarcasm and vindictive speech to keep that sort of control? I could do a thousand examples, but you ultimately have to make that determination. What is it that I'm willing to do horrible things to hang on to? Is that important to me? One more question. 
self-evaluation question, what craving do I have that if it isn't met, what craving do I have that if it isn't met, I feel anxiety, bitterness, rage, frustration? What craving do I have? Is it a desire for someone to listen to me? Is it a desire for someone to act differently? Is it a desire to have more things or be in a different circumstance of any kind? Sometimes the desire that somebody has that's so strong that they'll sin for it, that they'll be anxious, rageful, frustration, frustrated, will come out by accident when you give them the opportunity. One time I was taking some people to an airport that I was familiar with and they weren't. And I knew you needed to go down the ramp. And one particular woman in the car thought we needed to go up the ramp. And I said, we're going down. She said, no, you need to go up. We're coming up to it. I said, no, we're going to go down. She said, you need to go up. I said, no, we're going down. She said, you need to go up. And we're coming up to the split. And she starts going up, 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 up. I'm like, you're an adult. She was so desperate to be in control that she was willing to act the fool in order to keep that desire. I went down, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) One of the core parts of growing in Christ-likeness is identifying not just your cravings, but the fear or the lust behind it, and then rethink that truth. I know we're camping hard on this, but I want to give you two examples. Example number one, a wife who wants a more loving husband. A wife who wants a more loving husband. She believes she deserves it. She's tried hard, but she can't, he he's just doesn't seem to get her. He's just like, he's not getting it. And so based on her deep craving for her husband to change, she begins to manipulate him with guilt, with criticism, believing that she can change him through sheer erosion of his will. Instead, she should recognize that she's created an idol out of her wish for a more loving husband. She knows it has become an idol because she's now willing to sin heinously against him to try to get that thing And so she should confess that to the Lord continually as a sinful craving of her heart and instead trust the Lord and work on being content regardless of what her husband does or doesn't do. And it is possible. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4 that I have learned the secret of being content. I'll give you one other example. A business owner who's obsessed with appearing successful. A Christian business owner who's obsessed with appearing successful. And because of this, He begins to put a price tag on success. It includes not spending time with his family. It includes acting in a worldly manner with all of his clients to impress them. It includes even being deceptive with his clients and certainly making certain that all of his best so-called friends are also wealthy and successful so that he's always running in the so-called right circles. Instead, he should recognize this idol He should remember that James 1 says that the rich should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And he should remember that any success he enjoys is not to give him an emotional high that makes it an idol, but rather it is to be a conduit to blessing the kingdom of Christ. Since 1 Timothy 6 commands that as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in generous works, good works rather, to be generous and ready to share. And so the business owner should confess the sin of craving the appearance of success and instead strive for holiness. Yes, even at the cost of a sale, 
Yes, even at the cost of stepping up in the world. And yes, maybe even at the cost of his business. Back here in Numbers, how should those with the craving, how should they have been thinking about the manna that God gave them? Psalm 78, 24 and 25 says, He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels and he sent them food in abundance. Every day when they gathered manna, they should have said, Our God, we thank you for the grain of heaven. You have given us the very bread of angels in abundance. That's what they should have done. Oh, the antidote to craving is what? Thankfulness. That's the antidote. Could have saved a lot of trouble, but I really wanted to go through those other things too. Let me give you one more lesson that discipline can teach you. Stop complaining. Stop craving. And the last one, stop contending. Stop contending. Stop challenging authority. Numbers 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for, they, for he had married a Cushite woman. Probably Moses remarried after the death of Zipporah, his first wife. Some have indicated Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, had a concern over the fact that He was marrying a foreign woman. She was likely Ethiopian. I actually spoke many years ago to a a man who told me he was very, very concerned about mixed racial marriages. He was a racist. And he said, I'm not sure about a white man marrying a black woman. That was his specific question. So we went to Romans 12.1. I said, you know where the Cushite is? No, she's an Ethiopian. Now, Moses wasn't white. He was probably dark brown, so we're okay there. But that's not what it was about. That was an excuse. That was a smokescreen. They had, through their sinful thoughts and their bad attitudes, they'd gotten too big for themselves. So we used to say in Texas, too big for your britches. And they became disrespectful to Moses because of their real desire. That's just a smokescreen. They just found something to complain about. The real desire is verse 2 And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Oh, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, we want some of the power that you have. This is Aaron, by the way, the high priest of Israel. This is Miriam, the spiritual leader of all the women of Israel. Exodus 15 shows this when she leads them in song. And yet they wanted more. They were jealous of the special position of mediator between God and Israel, which Moses had, and they wanted in. Did you notice the response of Moses? He didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. And here's why. Verse 3. Now the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Interesting side note. Who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses did. And I would wonder if he took a double take at that and said, Lord, are you certain that's what you want me to write? But he wrote it because it was true. This is a monumental statement that out of all the people in the world, Moses was most meek. In Hebrew, literally, the most bowed down, the most humble. And so God gives Aaron and Miriam a disciplinary speech right in front of Moses. He doesn't say, let me, let me talk to you alone. I don't want to shame you. No, he humiliates them. Chapter 12, verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, 
Sounds like dad, doesn't it? Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Wow. He finishes this speech, and the glory of God lifts and leaves. And Miriam is transformed into a hideous wretch with a horrible skin disease. The Old Testament often uses the term leprosy. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Leprosy is used in the Old Testament to speak of a number of types of skin diseases, the technical term for leprosy, Hansen's disease, that didn't reach that part of the world until about the time of Christ. So whatever it was, though, it was serious enough that Aaron thought it was a death sentence. In verse 11, and Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when it comes out of his mother's womb. And the heart of the shepherd, the heart of the mediator comes through rather than saying, well, that's what you get. Moses says in verse 13, And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. And so God will be merciful, but God points out that even a minor, a minor little uncleanness would get Miriam seven days outside the camp. Verse 14, But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, a minor uncleanness, Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. Wow. All the women that she had led knew that she was outside the camp with this horrible skin disease and some sort of discipline from the Lord. God was very merciful to Miriam, even though he hates rebellion against his chosen authority. Now, the question I had when I was looking at this was, why were they so bold? Why do they feel so brave to flaunt their desire for power? Why do you think Miriam and Aaron were so emboldened as to rebel against Moses? Well, we have to remember the birth order of these three siblings. 1 Chronicles 6, 1 through 3 tells us that Amram had three children, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. That's not the birth order. But Aaron, we know from Numbers 33, was 123 years old when he died. Moses died six months later at the age of 120, Deuteronomy 34, 6. And so Aaron was three years older than Moses, give or take some months. But you remember when Moses was born, he had a sister, this can only be Miriam, who watched baby Moses floating in a basket on the Nile, And when the daughter of Pharaoh found him, Miriam went and got Moses' mother to care for him as a caregiver. Therefore, sister Miriam would have had to be six, seven, eight, nine, or ten years old or so. And so that much older than Moses. So we have Miriam, the older sister, 
Aaron, the middle child, and bringing up the rear, Moses, and God chose the squirmy little baby brother to be the leader, to lead the nation of several million and to be the mediator between God and Israel. Can I put it this way? Miriam and Aaron were emboldened because familiarity breeds contempt. They lost sight of the office that Moses possessed from God and instead they looked solely at the man. And that's when you're done. That's when you've entered into sin. God has given the Christian several spheres in life in which authority exists. Government, marriage, parents and children, workplace, the church. And in every case, God is clearly displeased with contentiousness against authority. God has placed this authority. We talked about this this morning. And he even gives honorable names to the offices to which we submit we have honorable kings and governors, 1 Peter 2. We have husbands. A husband is, a, is an honorable term of leadership and care. We have fathers and mothers. These are terms of respect and submission. We have masters. That's a catch-all term of honor for anyone in authority in a working environment of any kind. And we have elders or shepherds or pastors in the church. In every case, God gives an honorable and respectful name to the office. But one of our dangers as sinners is that familiarity breeds contempt. The husband that a newlywed wife was cooking breakfast for 10 years later is throwing the plate at him in anger. The child who obeyed his father when he was six is yelling and raising his voice to his father when he was 16. The worker who used to say yes, sir, to his boss is arguing and pushing back after a few years on the job. And the church member who used to have high regard for her pastors and elders now mock them and refuse correction. By the way, the very first sin was the sin of rebellion against authority. And it's never stopped since. I've been in the ministry long enough to have observed that the most content, peaceful, and joyful Christians are the ones who have stopped contending. They've stopped challenging authority in disrespectful ways. They've mastered the internal element that their submission is not just a show. As Colossians 3.22 says, not by way of eye service, meaning not by just looking submissive, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And on the other side, I've seen that the believer with the consistent problem with authority often gets hammered in life, sometimes to the point of complete destruction and disaster. The clear discipline of the Lord for a refusal to stop being contentious. So what lessons can the discipline of the Lord teach you? Stop complaining. Stop craving. Stop contending. And of course we have our perfect example of this humility in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus never once complained. When his own townspeople tried to throw him off a cliff as he was miraculously escaping he didn't turn around and say come on guys seriously really jesus never once craved something selfishly satan offered him a chance to skip the cross and rule the world and instead jesus continued forward on the path to pain and agony so that he might pay the penalty for your sin and jesus never once contended with authority he never once bucked authority he never once was contentious he paid taxes that ironically, as the Son of God, he was not obligated to pay. When given the chance to contradict even a small inheritance law, 
He refused. Luke 12, verse 13, a man said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said, who made me judge over you? He didn't contend. And certainly he never pushed back against his father's will that he was to go to the cross. And he was able to honestly say to his father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus never complained. He never craved. He never contended. And this is why Jesus is set up for us as the ultimate example of bearing up under trials. Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And now we've come full circle because after setting up Jesus as the ultimate example of bearing up under all things, what does the writer say? Back to where we started, verse 5 of Hebrews 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Right back where we started. Jesus is the ultimate example. And so remember our facts about discipline from the beginning. In any time of trial, I know that discipline happens to 100% of Christians. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. Any trial should result in self-examination. We're called to endure with hope and humility. Discipline may be associated with relationships and genuine confession of sin may end discipline. Now I have to say this. When we talk about Christian discipline... That is highly uncomfortable to us. But if you believe you are being disciplined by the Lord, you should take comfort in that because the Lord disciplines those whom he, what, loves. However, if you are not part of the Lord's family, if you are not part of the kingdom of Christ, whether your life is going well or whether your life is going badly, the discipline of the Lord is the least of your concerns because Christians concern themselves with discipline. You should concern yourself with wrath. The discipline of the Lord lasts a short time. The wrath of God lasts forever and it is not to those whom he loves. It is those whom he will hate. And you say, oh, that's a strong word. I just got it from the Bible. How could you say, well, God loves all people when most of them will be in hell for all eternity? Yes, there is a general love in which he extends the gospel plea over and over and over and over again. But at some point, love comes to an end. And now a person must contend with the wrath of God and it never ends. There's no repentance. There's no turning back. And so as a believer in Christ, you think you're being hammered by the Lord? Praise God. He'll hammer you all the way home to heaven. That's fine. You'll be okay. But if you're not in Christ, you have much more to fear than discipline. For all who are in Christ, I want to end with this encouragement. Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What a great encouragement for us. Let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you for Numbers 10, 11, and 12 and how uh, wonderfully they really teach us the very obvious lessons, Lord, that complaining will get us discipline. Craving and sinful lust will get us discipline. And certainly, Lord, contending with authority, which you have set up, will get us discipline. And so help us to learn, Lord, to 
stop those things, to stop complaining, to stop craving, to stop contending. But Lord, we also pray that as you bring us through very difficult times, that you would continue to teach us to have gratitude and to see the blessings in every single day, to count our blessings in every way, to walk through every trial in a way that's pleasing to you, and for us to come to the end of our lives having trusted you, and now so much more like Christ. We pray for the discipline of the Lord. We pray for humility. We pray, Lord, to be made more like Christ. We pray for you to knock the barnacles off of us. We pray for you to to carve off the rough spots. We pray for you to excise the tumors which hinder us so that we might, as the writer of Hebrews says, enjoy the fruit of righteousness as those who have been trained by discipline. Change us. Make us more like Christ. Help us to bend the knee, to bow, to aspire to be like Moses, to be bowed down, humble and meek so that Christ might become greater and we might become less. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.